Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Daughter of King Philip II of Spain, Isabel Clara Eugenia was the Infanta heir to the kingdoms of Spain and Portugal. Her mother was Elizabeth Valois, eldest daughter of Henri II, Henry II, King of France, and his wife, Catherine de' Medici, placing her in line for the French throne too, although under Salic law she couldn't inherit in her own right, and in her lifetime could never be crowned queen. Instead, she was known as one of the two archdukes of the Low Countries, with her husband Albert, and later, after Albert's death, as governor. But don't let these titles deceive you. Isabel's story provides a fascinating example of early modern female sovereignty. It illustrates how benevolence, humility, wifely obedience and piety could be exercised to realise great power and exert great influence. This was an extraordinary woman who harnessed her power as a woman, the power of art, of ritual, of architecture, even the power of her clothing to demonstrate authority and presence. To learn about Isabel's story, I'm delighted to be joined today by Magdalena Sanchez, Professor of Early Modern History at Gettysburg College, Pennsylvania. Professor Sanchez has published widely on early modern European women, and her volumes include Spanish Women in the Golden Age, Images and Realities, and Early Modern Dynastic Marriages and Cultural Transfer. Professor Sanchez, thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors today to talk, I suppose, about a queen by any other name. And talking names, that's where we need to start. In 
English literature, the woman we're going to talk about is often known as Isabella Clara Eugenia. What should we call her? Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'd say that um, I prefer to use her Spanish name. Her Spanish name was Isabel Clara Eugenia. And that's what I think it's preferable to use. Isabella is an anglicized version of the term. She would not have called herself Isabella. So I think it's much better to use the name she would have used. Yes, I think that seems absolutely right. There's something slightly colonial about the way that English renames every other city and place and person in an English form. Okay, so Isabel it is. So I suppose it would be very good to learn about her biography to start with. And so she's born in 1566. And at the age of two is betrothed to Rudolf, who's the successor to Maximilian II, the Holy Roman Emperor. And this you know, symbolises how significant she is in European power politics. But after this 20-year betrothal, because she's two when she gets engaged, it, Rudolf rejects her. What went wrong? And tell us about this situation. Well, I don't think it was ever actually a formal betrothal. I think that they talked about having her wed her cousin, Rudolf, and it was something that certainly Rudolf's mother, Empress Maria, who was uh, Philip II's sister, very much wanted. And so that betrothal, that possible match is talked about very much beginning in the early 1570s, but it was a betrothal that never actually was formalized in any way. And Rudolf in particular did not want to commit to marrying Isabel. So it was actually on both ends, they were a little bit unwilling to commit. And certainly for Philip II, Isabel was a real prize. He really felt as if he could negotiate a very advantageous marriage for her. He had issues with Rudolf, with his nephew Rudolf, for a variety of different reasons, questioned in part his religious faith. Also, Rudolf suffered from probably mental illness, was certainly depressed, and was unpredictable. And so it was not a marriage that Philip II was really that sure of. And eventually, say he tried to consider her as a candidate for the French throne and then wanted to marry her to Rudolf's brother, Archduke Ernst, whom he trusted much more. Was, his Catholicism was certainly much more in keeping with what Philip II would have wanted. Then when Ernst died, he married her to, or he negotiated the marriage with Archduke Albert. So I would say that the betrothal with Rudolf, there was never firm commitment on either side. But certainly it shows the importance of her marriage. The eldest daughter of the most prominent king of Europe at that time, it was really a very important match. And you mentioned there the consideration about France. Because she was the daughter of Elizabeth Valois, when Henri III, the King of France, Henry III, was assassinated, there's very much this moment, isn't there, where Isabel is being kind of thrust onto the European stage. Some people think of her as the legitimate sovereign of France. Can you tell us what happened? Philip II negotiated with the estates of France to try to have them choose Isabel as the queen. Salic law would have prevented her from ruling formally, so she would have to be married and she would rule as a consort. But certainly Philip II thought that he could convince the French to choose his daughter and to allow this match. The estates didn't go for it for many different reasons, probably in large part because of the long-term animosity between France and Spain. And also what really happened was Henry of Navarre converted to Catholicism and the Pope accepted that conversion, and then that was it. It became a non-issue. And there was no chance then of Isabel inheriting or being chosen as Queen of France. 
Yes, so he may or may not have said Paris was worth the mass. <laughs> but it is interesting, isn't it, that between the ages of 20 and 30, I mean, even if the betrothal with Rudolf was not official, it is interesting that no other dynastic betrothal is set up in that kind of crucial decade for a woman in the late 16th century. How would you explain that? Well, first of all, I think Philip was really looking to try to negotiate the best marriage he could for his daughter. But secondly, I think, and perhaps more importantly, she was the heir to the throne. She had, or Philip had, several sons by his fourth wife out of Austria. And of those sons, only one survived, the future Philip III. And that Philip, as a prince, was really quite weak, physically weak, was ill often. And so it was unclear that Philip would actually live to inherit the throne. So I think Philip II was most probably thinking that there was a good chance that his daughter could potentially become Queen of Spain and be the sovereign. And so he kept her close for that possibility. I think historians have also shown that he was informally training her as well. So as a princess, not a prince, she was not formally trained. But indirectly, it's pretty clear that Philip passed certain state documents to her, that he informed her of decisions, that she was present at audiences, particularly audiences given by her younger brother, so that there's an informal training of Isabel at the court. And that might also have been part of the reason why Philip was reluctant to marry her off. I mean, there's also the other issue that he cared deeply for that daughter. But I think still that wouldn't have been enough to explain him not marrying her or negotiating a marriage for her. And I suppose thinking that it was possible that she would become Queen of Spain is very much in keeping with a Spanish tradition where you've got these strong characters in the past, Isabel of Castile, for example, who have been very dominant women on the stage of monarchy in Spain. And, you know, there's a tradition there, isn't yeah. there? Certainly Philip II's sisters as well. His sister Juana, Juana de Austria, who was Queen of Portugal and then came back to serve as Regent of Castile for several years. She was still present at the court, was very close to Philip's daughters and Philip's wife. There's also Empress Maria, Philip's other sister, who was the mother of these archdukes. She retired to Spain in the early 1580s, but she's, again, this very formidable woman at the court of Philip II and into the court of Philip III. So, I mean, these are the examples that Isabel's familiar with. It seems to me she's very close to Juana de Austria. She's close to Philip's fourth wife out of Austria. She's close to Empress Maria. So she had these models of very strong women and also, obviously, of Isabel of Castile. So, yeah. So we... Get to 1598 and Isabel is betrothed to Albert, the Archduke of Austria, as you mentioned. And it's so interesting that her father names them to be co-sovereigns of the Netherlands once they're married. I suppose perhaps it might be worth telling our listeners what Philip had to do with the Netherlands <laughs> and why he was ceding them to his daughter and son-in-law before we go any further. He had inherited the Netherlands as part of... Uh, when, when Charles V divided up his inheritance, he gave... Philip, not only he was king of Spain, but he also gave him the Netherlands. So it's part of the inheritance, the Habsburg inheritance that he gets from his father. Very, very dear to him. You know, he had traveled to the Netherlands. He, he was very fond of the art, the, the Flemish gardens and so on. So it's a really very key and very well-loved part of his inheritance. But the Netherlands had been in revolt since, what, 1568, I believe it is. And so Philip had been dealing with this revolt that had was costing a a lot in money, you know, in, in soldiers and military might and so on. 
And I think by the end of his reign, when Philip was clearly knew he was dying, he, he was sick, he was weak, he uh, clearly knew that he, that something was going to have to happen. And so he decided to cede these territories to his very beloved daughter and Archduke Albert, who was kind of like a son to him as well. He had grown up at the court. He was Albert arrived at the court when he was 11 years old, had governed Portugal, had actually governed the Netherlands from 1595 to 1598. So, I mean, he was choosing two people who he firmly trusted, trusted that their faith was a very strong Catholic Tridentine faith, and he gave it to Isabel Clarogenia as her dowry. And so she first of all inherited them before she married Albert. And so this technically her dowry that she then brought into the marriage, that the session was contingent upon that marriage. So if, if the marriage for whatever reason had not happened, she would not have received the Netherlands. So that technically the Netherlands belonged to her, and then Albert would administer them as her dowry. And I guess the other thing I should mention is that I think Philip became convinced that perhaps the only way to pacify the territories would be by them having a prince there, what they would call, you know, a natural prince to be there and to rule there. And so he became convinced that the best way to keep these territories, both Catholic and loyal to Spain, was to have... Isabel and Albert be there and be princes, but with very definite connections and obligations to Spain. So their title is the Archdukes. And much of the historiography to date has assumed that it's Albert who is taking on all the day-to-day business of state and Isabel is kind of subordinate. What do you make of that? Well, I think that's been the historical tradition, right? I think it's been the historical tradition to give the to say that Albert was the one governing. And I think it's an image that was that Isabel certainly played into in her lifetime. She found it to be, in some respects, advantageous to play the sort of obedient wife who is submissive to the husband and who allows the husband to at least go to the Council of State meetings, do all the sort of official stuff of business. But there's a lot of evidence that she, in fact, was co-ruling with Albert that she, you know, that Albert would meet with her before going to council meetings. They'd look over papers together that they would coordinate policy. And certainly when Albert was away, undoubtedly she also attended council of state meetings and her signature appears in documents and so on. So, I mean, I think that's that's kind of, historians have bought into that myth. In some respects, Isabel also found it convenient to perpetuate that sort of myth of a submissive and obedient wife. But in practice, it was very clear that she played a really key role in governing. And even when Albert, for example, was leading the army and going off on these military campaigns, she was sending him provisions. She was going to visit him. She was taking care of making sure that the troops were where they needed to be and so on. So she's doing a lot of behind the scenes negotiating and provisioning and so on. I think that's so interesting that it is one possible for historians to get sort of caught up in the narrative of the sources and just swallow them hook, line and sinker. And no doubt that has, until quite recently, reflected historians' own biases about power and gender. But also that idea that actually it's hidden in the sources primarily perhaps because Isabel found it convenient not 
to make her power too obvious. And that's a really fascinating idea. There's so much sense in which female power is hidden in the sources, but in this way you're suggesting actually it's almost deliberately hidden. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's to me it's interesting as well because I think that Isabel must have been used to that from her time at the Spanish court, right? Historians have tried to even document what role she played in advising Philip II or helping her brother, for example, in the 1590s, when we know that Philip was increasingly ill and was trying to train his son and so on. And so historians have had a hard time even necessarily documenting what Isabel was doing at the Spanish court. And yet we know that she was very close to her father, that he clearly consulted her, that she was present at some audiences and so on. So my point is, is that I think Isabel, from even her time at the Spanish court, was used to influencing politics indirectly and sort of being behind the scenes. And so I think to a certain degree, the role that she takes on in the Netherlands or in the Low Countries is kind of similar to what she had developed in Spain in the 1590s. She was used to it. She was comfortable with it. She was a very pious, very Catholic, very devout woman. And she makes it a point, for example, to emphasize her religiosity, her piety. And that, for her, was also a way of gaining respect, right? Women often gained respect through being devout and publicly visiting churches and so on. And so I think she is cultivating that image of an obedient, submissive wife, of a devout woman, even as she's, in fact, influencing very much the decisions and making decisions behind the scenes. And how did the cities in the Low Countries treat Isabel? Did they see her as second fiddle to Albert, or did they recognise that she was a co-ruler? I think they clearly recognised that she was co-ruler. And we know, for example, the work of scholars have shown that in these joyous entries, for example, when Isabel and Albert travelled to the Netherlands and these cities greeted them as sovereigns, then they constructed ephemeral architecture and so on, celebrating the archdukes. It's interesting because they address Isabel as domina, as the mistress, and Albert, on the other hand, as the husband. And so they actually give preeminence to Isabel. They emphasize that she's really the sovereign and that Albert is merely the husband and the guardian. And what scholars like Margit Thofner have argued is that, in fact, that these communities did this consciously because what they wanted to emphasize was that the relationship between the archdukes and the communities should be like the relationship between a husband and a wife, that Yes, the husband was dominant and that the wife had to be obedient or submissive to the husband, but the husband in turn had a duty to be generous and kind and loving towards the wife. And so in this case, the archdukes are the husband, right? And actually it's really Isabel Clarogenia who's the husband, and these communities are the spouse who then should be treated, should be loved. And there's the assumption that if they're not loved and treated well, that this is a sort of contractual relationship and that if they're not treated and loved well, that they then can break that marriage, right? That they can then revolt and then they can, that they have a right to reject then that marriage. And so these communities actually emphasized Isabel's power. She's also the woman and female power is weaker. It was actually in their advantage to emphasize that Isabel is the one in charge, the woman who is supposed to be generous and more loving, and that that's really the type of relationship that should characterise the relationship between the archdukes and the, and the different provinces. That makes sense of why the cities in the Low Countries would be making that case and making it seem as if Isabel is sovereign or emphasising her sovereignty. But why did 
Albert not object? What what was there to gain for him and indeed for Isabel by accepting this kind of narrative? Well, it's interesting because the Archdukes, they couldn't control this type of iconography, they, these types of uh, joyous entries and so on. It was out of their control. And so on the whole, the Archdukes sort of overlook these joyous entries. They don't really make a big deal about them. But instead, in the types of pamphlet literature that circulates about their power and so on, they emphasize much more their God-given right, right? That they're actually, they actually have, that God has given them the right to rule these provinces. And so, in a sense, these provinces could do, or these cities could do what they wanted. But the archdukes chose to really emphasize that they had sovereign power and they, and it was a God-given power. One thing they could control, though, which you've written about really fascinatingly in your research, is that they could use certain methods and of art and architecture, for example, to win the allegiance of their Dutch subjects. Could you give us some examples? Well, I mean, I, I guess I'd, I'll just say that at least in their palace in Kudenberg in, in Brussels, I, shouldn't say, I should call it the Kudenberg Palace in, in Brussels, over the main altar, they had a large painting of the Adoration of the Magi of the Kings, right? And so people attending Mass in that chapel would have looked at the Adoration of the Kings, and it was in large part to emphasize, I think the Archdukes used it to emphasize, again, that their power was God-given, right? It was not contractual, as maybe these cities or provinces would have wanted. It was rather God-given. And so they used that, I think, to emphasize the divine nature of their power. So... Give me a bit more of a sense of these 22 years when they are co-ruling. And I'm particularly interested, I suppose, in the way in which Isabel handled the tension between being a sovereign and being a wife. You've talked a little bit about her playing to the pious image of a woman. But what else was she actively involved in? I'd say the the one thing that I have worked very much on, and I think she was very actively involved in, was correspondence. And I think that it seems to me that women in particular took a very important role in writing letters, right, of keeping these different parts of the Habsburg family unified and in touch with each other and so on. And so one of the main things that Isabel did was to write the Spanish court. She kept in very close contact with the Spanish court. In particular, she wrote to the Duke of Lerma, who was Philip III's privado, his favorite, his royal favorite, and had a great deal of control over what Philip III did. And so Isabel, who had known him at the Spanish court, takes it upon herself to maintain this very detailed correspondence with the Duke of Lerma, also to send him gifts, to flatter him. The correspondence is fascinating because it really shows Isabel using it to gain Lerma's confidence and affection and so on. It's interesting, too, that even, for example, when she sends gifts to Philip III, she often would send them to Lerma first for Lerma to be the one to hand them to Philip III. And so I would say that's one of the primary things that Isabel does is to really maintain this correspondence with Spain and make sure that Philip III and the Duke of Lerma were keeping Flanders in mind, were, you know, keeping the Low Countries in, in mind, that, that they were keeping the interest of the Archdukes in mind. And so I would say that was probably one of the most important things that she did. And it was, I think, agreed upon between her and Albert. Albert wrote the Duke of Lerma as well, and also obviously wrote Philip III. But it was agreed upon them, I, I think, to that this would be one th- way that Isabel could make use of her family connections and her knowledge of the Spanish court to really negotiate informally for her and for Albert at the Spanish court. 
Hello everyone, James Rogers here, the host of the Warfare podcast by History Hit. I'm a war historian who works with the UN, NATO and governments around the world. Twice a week, every week, we bring you the defining wars of history and learn about the history of emerging wars. The passengers and crew of 149 were trapped trapped and delivered into the hands of Saddam Hussein. We hear from the veterans who served. Guards there would grab a machine gun and fire at us as we went over and could see the splinters flying in all directions. Through to world-leading historians providing context to understand current conflicts. Finland obviously couldn't join NATO, which makes the two Finnish leaders' statements about Finland deciding for itself whether it will join NATO. That makes those statements even more important. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hits on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us on the front lines of military history. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. It's interesting how powerful a political and diplomatic activity letter writing could be. That's such an important thing to remember. And what about the fact that Albert was often away on military campaigns? What was Isabel's role when he was at war? Well, she was making sure that that he received finances for the campaign, also that provisions were there. And also, I'm sure that she was taking part in council meetings and so on. So in a sense, she was administering everything while he Mm. was gone. She also traveled to the to the battlefield to to, to see him occasionally. Um, so, and then Albert himself suffered from very serious gout and really went through some years in which he was incapacitated. And so, during that time, clearly Isabel played a much more direct role, assuming many of the tasks, even the public tasks that Albert would have done. There are also many sort of public activities that she took a greater role in. Again, perhaps because Albert was sick with gout. But we know that she, and this is documented also in the artwork, that she goes out to attend weddings, like peasant weddings or weddings of courtiers and so on. And again, this is depicted in the artwork. And she's shown interacting very well with common, ordinary people. And she gained that reputation for being very affable, for being very easy to converse with, unlike Albert, who had a much more sort of austere reputation, right, that he was not as approachable as as Isabel was. And again, that's using ideas about femininity, isn't it, to her advantage? Absolutely, yeah. And I I think certainly it probably came naturally to her, but it's cultivated as the correspondence with Lerma is cultivated. She had been trained, I mean, she and her sister as well at the Spanish court had been trained in letter writing. And they clearly knew how to write letters and how to converse at a distance with through these letters. 
and to use them very effectively to try to win favor with someone. Now, when Albert died, 1621, so after 22 years as co-sovereigns, Isabel planned to retire to a royal convent. Why did she not? So that whole issue is really very interesting. I'd say that Albert dies in 1621, and I guess maybe I should backtrack for just a minute and say that then when Philip II ceded the Netherlands to Isabel and to Albert, it was ceded with certain conditions. For example, a Spanish army had to be, was resident there, and Albert and Isabel could not declare war or sue for peace, for example, without the support of the Spanish king. But one of the other things that the session stipulated was that if Isabel and Albert had a daughter, the daughter was to marry either the Spanish king or the heir to the Spanish throne or someone approved by the Spanish king. And it's very clear that Isabel desperately wanted a child. And in his biography of Archduke Albert, Luke Durlu claims that she did get pregnant but had a miscarriage. I mean, the evidence is circumstantial, but regardless, my point is, is that she was, I think, very desperate to have a child and to have this heir so that the Netherlands would continue in her hands and in her line. By about 1616, it's very clear they're not going to have a child. And so by 1616, Philip III in Spain was getting pretty nervous and pretty anxious. It was clear that the Netherlands were going to devolve to him because the archdukes didn't have a child. And so by 1616, he actually has all the different provinces swear allegiance to him. Albert acts as his proxy, and so they, they swear allegiance to Philip III. And so when Albert died in 1621, my point is, is that it's a smooth transition, right? That the Netherlands, on the basis of the session that it said, if they have no heirs, the territories will devolve to Spain. Philip III, actually, by that point, it's Philip IV. Philip III died in early 1621. They devolved to Spain. And Isabel then chooses to be, she would wanted to return to the convent of the Descalces Reales in Spain, convent that she was very familiar with. She had spent lots of time in. She spends, for example, when Philip II dies, she goes there to mourn. She, she knew the convent well and wanted to retire there. But Philip IV asks her to stay as governor. And she claims that the evidence is a little unclear, but she claims that she had promised Albert also to stay as governor. So did she, was she really serious about returning to the disguises? Was that more of a ploy? It's a little bit unclear to me, but she chooses to stay as governor. She's, Philip IV convinces her to stay as governor, and that's what she does until the end of her life. Several things are fascinating to me. It's fascinating that she adopts the garb of a Franciscan tertiary. She becomes a Franciscan tertiary. So she immediately starts dressing in the garb of basically a nun. And that's the way she attends council meetings. That's how she meets ambassadors in this very clear sign of her piety. And also, Albert was buried in the garb of a Franciscan tertiary. And so in a sense, she's sporting his shroud, right? She's dressed, it's a connection with her husband. She's a widow, she's a, you know, her, her piety and so on, but also she's wearing Albert's shroud, not literally. It's kind of a fascinating way that you have to think about what she was thinking. To me, it's a very conscious decision. Cordula von Waya has looked at that Franciscan garb. It still exists and it's very well tailored. The bodice part is tied in the back in order to sort of, so that the bodice could be you know, loosened or it could be tightened. But you need a servant to tighten that bodice. And so again, this is not the garb of just any ordinary Franciscan tertiary, right? It's this ruling woman. Again, very well made, very comfortable, sleeves that are in style, 
So again, she's adopting all this outward signs of piety and devotion, and no devotion even to her husband, but it's all in a courtly fashion. That's just so fascinating. I mean, there's so much of what you said there that's just brilliant. Obviously, at this point in time, the personal is political, and you're absolutely right to point to the sort of great tragedy of her life, which is that she doesn't have children and the consequences politically for that. But also these decisions to use her piety in these political ways and that wonderful analysis you've just given us of of dress is fascinating. And I suppose what we're contending with here is that she's no longer Archduke. She's now a governor, which is sort of demotion. But she has more power perhaps than she's ever had before and she's got to present that in some way that is acceptable to those who are encountering her. Yeah, absolutely. And in a sense, she does have more official power because she's no longer sovereign. She can't stay behind the scenes anymore, right? She even gains the title of Captain General, which Albert had had. So she's technically supposed to be at the front of the army. Again, obviously, it's only figuratively, right? She works very closely with her main general, Ambrogio Spinola. But still, technically, she's the one who's Captain General of the army. So she can decide what she does and, uh, you know, decide what happens. But she clearly recognizes that to make her rule, in a sense, more palatable, it helps to be dressed as a widow, as a Franciscan tertiary, and so on. So yeah, I was also going to add that the court in Spain debates the powers given to her, and they actually end up giving her greater powers as governor than previous governors had had, both to show their support and respect for her. But I think also people, several members of the court recognize that if she felt her powers were too curtailed, that she would step down and just retreat to the convent. So, I mean, she's playing a very careful game here, it seems to me, and it, it works, and she governs effectively. I also think, for example, that here she is, Philip II's oldest daughter, closest daughter. She knew her brother, Philip III, her half-brother, Philip III, very well, and helped raise him and so on. By 1621, when she becomes governor, the king of Spain, she doesn't even know. He, he wasn't even born when she left Spain, and she left Spain at 32, very close to 30, 33. So here she's dealing with somebody who was not even a baby when she was at the Spanish court. And so I really wonder what she thinks about this guy that somehow now she has to be subordinate to him and listen to what he wants. And it's fascinating too, because there's a very famous siege of Breda in the middle part of the 1620s in which you know, after a year-long siege, the, the town of Breda falls. Philip IV and his first minister, the Count Duke of Olivares, take credit for it. But she's very careful, and again, scholars have looked at this pretty carefully. She's very careful to have these series of etchings done of the siege of Breda with captions done in four different languages. And she quickly sends these etchings with these captions and so on to all different European courts really claiming it as her victory and the victory of her general, not as the Philip IV's and the Count Duke of Olivares's victory. So I think, you know, she's a savvy woman who I think must have felt a certain degree of resentment or at least was not fully comfortable with Philip IV and his first minister and really was defending her power and also was very concerned, I think, that the policies of Philip IV and Olivares were somehow hurting the Netherlands and that. So I think she knew very well what she was doing. 
I love that she had that ultimatum. Well, give me enough power or I'll just go to the convent. I know, I'll just go to the convent. (laughs) In thinking about foreign relations you just touched on, presumably her change of status was confusing for some other monarchs who kind of thought, oh, well, she she doesn't have sovereignty and we can use this to our advantage. How did she operate in other examples in terms of her foreign affairs while she was governor? It's interesting because she, even though she was governor, she and, and actually with, with the Archduke, they still had resident ambassadors there so that monarchs continued to send ambassadors to her court, even though she's just a governor. And there's an interesting case of problems with the English ambassador, in fact, because the English ambassador complained, wanted her to intervene so that the Spanish would stop their attack on the Palatinate. And it's a much more complicated story than that. But the English ambassador expected that Isabel could get Spain to pull back their military forces and stop attacking this region. And Isabel said she was sorry, but she was only governor and she did not have control over what Spain did. And clearly she had a lot of authority and she had authority to, and a lot of, she could have tried to convince Philip IV and Olivares of of just about anything. But in that particular case, she chose to use her lack of power, lack of sovereignty to argue why she could not intervene in a case in which she had no interest in intervening. At that point, the English ambassador was really quite frustrated with her, said James I should have saved himself the trouble of sending an ambassador to her court if he had known that she lacked the power to do anything. But again, it's, I think, very clear that she could claim to lack power on occasions when it wasn't convenient for her to have that power, if that makes any sense. Isabel is coming across as a very canny operator. Towards the end of her life, I mean, having experienced decades, a lifetime of fighting in the Netherlands, she seems to have become convinced that this constant fighting had to end. Do you think at this point, at this very end, we see her acting as perhaps at her most queen-like? Well, I think certainly towards the end of her life, she took matters into her own hands, that she actually tried to negotiate with the northern provinces, tried to renegotiate to bring an end to the war. And she did not inform Spain of what she was doing. She didn't inform the representative body of the southern Netherlands either. So she was really acting very independently. And it didn't work. You know, she did not come to any agreement with William of Orange or whatever. But in fact, when Philip IV complained, she said, well, She could basically step back. At that point, she didn't really care very much. She had done what she thought she had to do, and she really didn't care too much. So to a certain degree, I think you're right, that towards the end of her life, she had really become quite independent and really stopped worrying too much about what people in Spain thought. I'm going to ask you for a final word of judgment on her in a second, but I know that some of your recent research is into Isabel's sister, Catalina Michaela, Could you tell us a bit about her and the work that you've done on her? Yeah, my work now is really completely on Catalina Micaela, who's uh, the younger sister of Isabel by one year, and she married the Duke of Savoy in 1585. They're fascinating, fascinating sisters. They really are fascinating sisters in very different lives because Catalina married at the age of 17 and had 10 children and I think really developed a very close, almost amorous relationship with her husband, Whereas I think the marriage between Isabel and Albert, I wonder about the amorous quality. Albert was seven years older, but Albert was 11 when he reached the Spanish court. Isabel was four. So yeah, there's a, like seven years difference between them. 
grew up as cousins. So I really doubt whether that was really, it was very definitely a partnership, but I really doubt that, that it was an amorous marriage. Whereas with Catalina, I think it is very clearly an amorous marriage. And again, unlike Isabel, who's often behind the scenes, Catalina governs. Her husband leaves her as his lieutenant when he goes off on these military campaigns beginning in 1588 and continuing until her death in 1597. And what's also fascinating to me is that Catalina is governing, she's doing all the things that Isabel did, right? She's serving as basically as, as her husband's quartermaster, providing all the things that he needs and so on, taking care of everything at home, even as she gives birth to all these children. She's pregnant, she's giving birth. I have evidence that really she's returning to all of her administrative work and political work a day or two after giving birth. So, I mean, it's kind of a, she's an amazing woman. I think Isabel and Albert must have written to each other. But as far as I know, those letters have not survived. We have the letters of Caterina Micaela and her husband. So their relationship is really very well documented. And so that also allows us insight into the life of Caterina Micaela, of this younger sister of Isabel, her relationship with her husband, her very clear participation in, in government, and a whole range of other things. She comments, for example, she and her husband comment about Isabel and how difficult Isabel's life was at the Spanish court in the last few years. So in other words, I think probably that type of documentation would have existed for between Albert and Isabel Clarugenia, but we don't have it. For me, that's a really fascinating comparison, a fascinating case to study. And she's completely unknown. You know, some people have heard of Isabel Clarugenia, hardly anyone has heard of, of Catalina. So it's a fascinating case. And so interesting that she was going back to work so quickly after childbirth, because that was so unusual at this time when you had to go through quite often churching ceremonies and that the whole period of lying in could be one that, that takes you away from the political sphere. But Catalina Michaela is not accepting that at all. No, she's still doing business in her bedroom. Yeah, before she's still, you know, the lying in or whatever. She's she's continuing all different types of activities. Yeah, she didn't have the luxury in a sense to take time off. Now, it's interesting because Catalina Michaela was Duchess of Savoy and we've talked about Isabel's titles as Archduke and as Governor. We're obviously here in the UK marketing the Platinum Jubilee celebrations of Queen Elizabeth II. Would you consider Isabel to have been a queen by any other name? And if you do think so, what do you think that tells us about the nature of female sovereignty in this period? Well, I think she certainly was queen by any other name. I should add that Albert sought to gain the title of king and queen of Burgundy, which he, he never gained. But yeah, I would say she was a queen by any other name. And I think it tells us that often women who hold political power have to be much more careful about how they project that power or how they use that power. I think that they have to be much more careful about their image, that they often use a language of humility, of, you know, that they really shouldn't express an opinion, but in fact, this is, and then they go on to actually say very clearly what they think. So I think women in power recognized that holding power was considered to be something unfeminine, masculine, and so that they have to be much more careful with how they exercise that political power. And I think that's the case with Isabel, using piety, using devotion. I think she was conscious of making sure that she didn't offend her people and that she, she had to be much more careful about exercising political power. I think also that female rulers or, or people like Isabel recognize that often they 
need to exercise power indirectly through others, and that therefore that's more palatable to people. That's not to say that they didn't actually have power, but they choose to exercise it indirectly, in this case, Isabel through Albert, right? Or they choose to couch it in certain ways to make it more palatable to their audience. And then they actually rule very effectively. Thank you for such a fascinating introduction to this woman who seems to have been such an important and powerful operator and yet whose fame is not that great in Anglophone circles. And so it's really lovely to have a chance to talk about her and indeed briefly her sister. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. 